0: you can't talk about the mission of God without noticing the covenants that God established with his people throughout the history of the Bible you you open up the pages of the Bible and it doesn't take long before you read about the first one that God made with Noah that still extended to us now thousands and thousands of years later God basically put a rainbow in the sky and said that's the sign of the covenant that I'm making with you that will never again destroy the world by water. Now this week, by the time we get through with it, as much rain as they're predicting, we may wonder about it, but God's covenant is secure. We then went and noticed in the book of Genesis chapter 12, God making a covenant with a man by the name of Abram, who becomes Abraham. And the reason is because God took him out and had him to look up at the sky and said, listen, as numerous as the stars in the heavens, So will your descendants be. And of course, here we are some 4,000 years later. And sure enough, Abraham's descendants numbers in the millions of millions. Then God went and took Moses and went to Mount Sinai where he entered into covenant with Israel. Three or four weeks ago, John, Micah, and William both talked about how that Moses became an instrument of God, challenged us to be the same. And so they go to Mount Sinai, and there God enters into covenant relation with them. We call it the law of Moses. And as part of that covenant relationship, he challenged Israel to be the same thing that he challenges you and me to be, which is a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And of course, last week we looked at how that God took this nation, placed it right in the middle of the nations. I mean, right between Africa and Asia and Europe, basically to be an example to the world. We move today to the fact that Israel would soon ask for an earthly king. Now, one of the things we need to understand is that God always knew that that was going to happen. You go back to the book of Genesis, chapter 49, where Israel is blessing his sons. And he comes to his son Judah, and he gives one of the great messianic prophecies of the Old Testament when God said the scepter will not depart from Judah. In other words, Judah will be the tribe through which the kings of Israel come through. But notice the last part. The ruler's staff will not depart from his feet until he to whom it belongs will come. And the obedience of the nations, which is what we're part of even today. I mean, most of us don't belong to Israel in the sense that we're descendants of David by blood. We belong to Israel, but because we're descendants of Abraham through faith, as are people from all over the world, the nations have come in fulfillment of this prophecy. Moses himself had given instruction regarding them appointing a king. And notice the language that's used here. When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, and you've taken possession of it, you've settled in it, and you say, let us set a king over us like all the nations around us. Now, what Moses writes next is what's the most important thing. He says, be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord chooses. He's got to be the one who decides who will represent him in ruling over Israel. And of course, it doesn't take us long at all where the Israelites are actually asking for that king. Joshua had led them into the promised land. There had been the period of the judges over a two to three hundred year period. And, and then all at once, Israel comes, says to Samuel, the last of the, of the judges, your, your sons are not like you. And so, what we want you to do is appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations. How? Just like Moses had said they would. The only problem is they wanted to be so much like the other nations that they wouldn't wait for God. They wouldn't be patient for what God was doing. God literally came to Samuel and said, Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you that they have rejected, but it's me they rejected as their king. One of the great principles we all need to understand about evangelism. I mean, when we share the gospel of Jesus Christ with others and they turn their back on it, it's not us. Now, I have to admit, it's hard not to take it personally. But it's not us that they're rejecting. It's God himself, just as the Israelites had done. And so God had always intended to give them a king, but he wanted to do this on his timetable and for his purposes And Israel jumps the gun. By the way, you ever done that? Have you ever become impatient with God? You know, Abram did. Abram became so impatient that when Sarah says, listen, take my handmaiden and see if you can have a child by her. Abram's like, okay. You know, the great man of faith. Okay, we'll we'll see if we can't push or hurry God along. And I've done that in my life. Been impatient with God. God, how long? How long? And God's answer is, a little bit longer. You know? And for Israel, they were too impatient. And so they refused to listen to Samuel. And look again at the language. We want a king over us. It's almost as if they're saying, now. Then we'll be like all the other nations. And so God said, give him a king. Now, right off the bat, we know that it's not the king God wanted. First of all, it doesn't come from the tribe of Judah. It came from the tribe of Benjamin. But when you look at how it describes this king, look at the language here. Kish had a son, he's, he's from the tribe of Benjamin, named Saul, as handsome a young man as could be found in all of Israel. And not only that, he was a head taller than everyone else. I knew when I saw that he was a head taller than everyone else, that it was going to end up bad. Right? Only time I'm head taller than anyone else is when I'm teaching the kindergartners. That's the only time. You know. But but here's a man that Israel looked at and they said, boy, that's the kind of man we want as a king. He's handsome, he's tall. I mean, look at I mean how he'll represent us to the world. And God looks at him and says, yeah, that's the problem. You're looking at the wrong thing. So Saul wasn't God's king, he was the people's king. And we see that happen just very rapidly. I mean, you go from 1 Samuel chapter 9 to 1 Samuel chapter 16. I mean, uh, seven chapters, and all at once God comes to Samuel and says, fill your horn because I have rejected Saul as king over Israel. Never was his choice. And he said, I'm going to send you down to Bethlehem, down to someone from the tribe of Judah, to Jesse, and I've chosen one of his sons, to be king over my people. I've chosen him. And I love what happens next. Samuel goes down. He arrives there. And, and he calls for the village to you know, have a, a, a celebration. They're going to make a sacrifice. They're going to eat dinner together. And of course Jesse and his boys are going to be kind of the guests of, of Samuel. And as the boys come before Samuel... Samuel looks at the oldest one, Eliab, and thinks, Surely the the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. What's Samuel done? He made the same mistake Israel made. I mean, he looks on the outside instead of on the inside. And and don't we as Americans do that more than perhaps any nation before us? I mean, if you're a handsome guy, boy, you get all the attention. If you're a good-looking woman... You get all the attention. I always wondered why in high school the superlatives always started with most handsome and most attractive. They never did start with the guy who made the best grade, grade in geometry class or, or the guy who you know, did the best in chemistry class. You know, it was always this or that, but seldom anything having to do with the heart. And that was the problem even with Samuel. Lord says, don't consider his appearance. Don't look at his height. Same mistake they had made with Saul. Why? God said, I've rejected him. And then he explains why. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And so he asked Jesse, he says, are these all the sons you have? I mean, seven had passed in front. God had rejected all seven. Jesse says, well, I mean, there's one more. He's the youngest. He's out taking care of the sheep. Send for him. And of course, David is brought in. And I love the way Saul of Tarsus, Paul, I mean, if you think for a moment, a man named after the first king, because he was from the tribe of Benjamin, but here is the apostle Paul, and he's explaining how that after removing Saul, his namesake, he made David their king. And here's what he said about David. I found David, son of Jesse, a man after my heart. He'll do everything I want him to do. William, while ago was talking about our youth group, and and one of the things I want you to realize is that David was in the youth group there in Bethlehem. I mean, he's a teenager. I mean, he's a teenager, youngest of all these brothers. I mean, he lives there in the community. Everybody knows the, you know, the guy who keeps the sheep out here on the hillside. And yet here as a teenager is someone that God looks at and says, that's my man. And that's why, Blake, you're exactly right. Teenagers are not the church of tomorrow. They're the church of today. I mean, God looks at so many of our young people here at Hendersonville and says, that's the kind of people I'm looking for because that's the kind of hearts that can make things happen. And so to all of our teens, thank you. Thank you for being God's men and women. Now, here's the interesting question. What was it about David? It's this young teenager at this age that God could look at him and say, that's what I'm looking for in someone who's going to lead my people. And by the way, as we just kind of go through this list really quick, can I ask you a question? Are you this type of person? If not, what's holding you back? If not, what are you waiting for? You know, as Dennis said during our communion thoughts, maybe it's time to start calling someone all the time and saying, what are you waiting for? It's time to come back to the Lord. Look at the characteristics that the Bible describes, and listen, you could look at so many more. David was an amazing character, probably more written about him in the Old Testament than anybody else in the Old Testament, both written about him and written by him. That's what's astonishing. The first thing we know is that he's a man of incredible, courageous faith. I did a funeral yesterday, and one of the things I do, I, I got this from David Swanner many years ago, But one of the things I do when I do a funeral is I ask the family, if you could describe your loved one in one word, what word would you describe? Yesterday's lady, the words were loving, heart, fierce. One of my favorite was from one of the grandchildren. said, nanny was brutal. And of course, you think, brutal. And of course, the response that followed that was, She was brutal in loving her family. She was brutal in standing up for what it was right. She was brutal in pointing you to God. And I thought, boy, I like that word, brutal. Well, for David, it would have been faith. But not just faith, but courageous faith. And we know the first story. The first story you see is this story of where he goes out. He sees this giant Philistine named Goliath. He's he's basically challenging the entire nation of Israel. Even Saul's afraid to go out. The tallest, most handsome among Israel won't go face this giant. And David listens to him mocking the God of Israel and says, I'll go. And, of course, he goes out with a sling and some stones. And, and I love what he says to Goliath when he finally meets him. He says, you come to me, you come to me carrying a sword and spear and javelin as your weapons. This is from The Voice, and I love this translation. But I come armed with the name of the Eternal One, the, the commander of the heavenly armies, the true God of the armies of Israel, the one you have insulted. I mean, when I look at his response to Goliath, I think, man, a movie needs to be made about that. You know, that's one of those one-liners in a movie that you'll never forget, but it describes this faith of this young teenager who says, enough is enough, I'll take him on. And, of course, he did. But not just a man of courageous faith, but he was a man of passionate worship. Well, that's one thing I think I love most about David Now, by the way, I want to apologize to those who... This morning, sometimes Ken up there does a great job, but he's running so many mics, he forgot to turn mine off. And so I was helping lead the singing in that first song. Blake, sorry about that. And I was standing over here thinking, wonder if Ken's turned me off as John Micah runs runs over here going, Thanks, John. Appreciate that. I didn't know it was that bad, but maybe it was. But let me tell you something. I love passionate worship. Let me, let me tell you, we, we got beautiful singers in our church. But, but if I had to pick one person who I thought was probably the best singer in all of our church, it would be Pete Parker. Pete, when he sings, sings so beautifully and purely that I think the angels must be just pausing to listen to him sing. They probably don't listen to me, pause to listen to me, but they pause to listen to him. David was a person like that. I mean, he just gave it all to God. He authored over half of the Old Testament songs. You know, their songbook was Psalms. You look in the front of the pew, we got a songbook. They had a songbook. It was called the Psalms. 150 songs in it. David authored about half of them. I think 40 of, 48 of them say, you know, of David. Another two are attributed to David in the New Testament. I mean, here was a man who we can read of his love for God, his passion for God, everything that drove him inside. He's called, according to the voice, 2 Samuel 23, the sweet song writer of Israel. And you find him in an act of worship in 2 Samuel 6. He's captured Jerusalem. He's wanting to bring the Ark of the Covenant and the Tabernacle to Jerusalem, he wants it to be in the center of the nations. And so they go to get it. And look at the language here. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps. I mean, you think about that. Six steps. One, two, three, four, five, six. It was time to stop. It was time to offer a bull. It was time to kill a fatted calf. And then six more and they would do it again. And David's wearing a linen ephod, which is kind of representative of, of the priestly uh, 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 priesthood there in Israel. And he's dancing before the Lord with all of his might. I think that sometimes bothers us. You know, if you grew up like me, you know, dancing you know, was one of those horrible, terrible sins. Even though, as we learned in a movie about dancing... Even though David danced, even though Ecclesiastes says there's a time to dance, even though at the prodigal son's return there was music and dancing, we somehow figured out that dancing was always sinful. And of course the answer to that is no. Anybody who's ever been to Israel, and I know Rodney, you and Juanita, you've seen it. I've seen it. I was over there literally four years ago right now. And I remember hearing a noise when I was right outside the wailing wall of the temple. And I walk outside, and here's a whole class of, you know, I don't know, 17, 18-year-old Hasidic Jews. And these guys are there, and they're singing, and they're dancing, and they're praising God. And I'm looking at them thinking, that's the way it was. Wow. And that's the way David, he danced before the Lord with all of his mount. mount, And here's all of Israel with him and they're shouting and trumpets are blaring. Why? Because they're bringing the presence of God into Jerusalem. But what's fascinating about that story is it sets up another characteristic of David. He was also a man who loved God's law, but he had to learn to love God's law. You see, if you go back just a few verses in that same chapter, David is bringing the ark the first time up to Jerusalem. And he makes a mistake. I mean, as he's coming up to the temple, they're carrying the ark on a new cart, brought it up from the house of Abinadab. And and as they're approaching Jerusalem, basically the oxen stumble. It looks like the ark is going to fall off. And, and in so many ways, what you find is David and those with him, they're zealous for God. But as, as Saul would say, or Paul would say in Romans 10 too, but it wasn't based on knowledge. They made a mistake about the fact that, you know what, you can be zealous for, with, with God and then do whatever you want. And God says, no, you can't. And you remember Uzzah as he goes to steady the Ark of the Covenant and God strikes him dead. Which caused David to say, okay, get it out of here we've messed up David had to go and figure out what went wrong I mean I wanted to honor God I wanted to make God the center of our life in Israel what did I do wrong and what's amazing is you just find out what he did wrong it was because you the Levites did not bring it up the first time that the Lord our God broke out in anger about us. We did not inquire of him about how to do it in the prescribed way. In other words, was there a way to carry the ark? Yes. And it wasn't on an ox cart. That was the problem. And David had to learn a very valuable lesson. You see, if he had learned the lesson first, I don't know if you've ever noticed this text. This is from Deuteronomy 17. It's instructions to the kings of Israel. And I want you to look at what each king was supposed to have done. David evidently didn't do it. When he takes the throne of his kingdom, he has to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law taken from the Levitical priest. In other words, the king was supposed to sit down, have a blank scroll, take very likely the book of Deuteronomy, maybe as well some of the other books of the Pentateuch, and write his own copy of it. Why? And I'm reminded of an old professor... Uh, Rodney, Jack Lewis Jack Lewis used to say when I was in graduate school He says, I hope you will take a pen and write down all of this He said, you can buy copies of my lesson notes But I hope you'll actually make them yourself Because there's something about writing it with a pen That gets it in your head And evidently God thought the same thing Because it will be with him he has to read it all the days of his life so they may learn to revere the Lord as God. Follow carefully all the words of his laws and these decrees. And David steps back. And before he brings the ark up the second time, he realizes we have messed up. We didn't do it God's way. And I love what he then wrote in Psalm 19. I can't help but wonder, after finding out what he had done wrong, after going back and maybe making his own copy of uh, parts of the, of the covenant, did he then set down and pen this song? The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. Now, let's take the covenant, uh, uh, excuse me, take the Ark of the Covenant up to Jerusalem. then number four, he was a man of deep devotion. David made a huge mistake in his life. The man after God's own heart had a sin that we still talk about now some 3,000 years later. I mean, we know the woman's name he sinned with. We know the man's name that he had murdered. I mean, you think about what crimes of the past do we have in such incredible detail as we do of David's crime? And yet, even though he fell away from God for that brief moment, I mean, he quickly restored, came back to God, wrote that beautiful Psalm 51 of his repentance. And as he became an old man, he wanted to to build a temple to God. I mean, he he basically looked and he said, Here I am in this incredible palace, and God's living in a tent? Really? Really? And so David said, My son Solomon is young and inexperienced, and the house to be built for the Lord should be of great magnificence and fame and splendor in the sight of all the nations. I mean, exactly what God wanted him to do. So David made extensive preparations before his death, but he didn't build it. He didn't build it because when he went and and decided to do it and, and he gathered all of his wealth. I mean, when you look at the wealth that he had and all that he donated to that cause, you think, why in the world, David, didn't God allow you to do it? And the answer is, God said, why have you not built me a house? He said, have I ever asked any of those who led my people to build me a house? And, of course, the ultimate answer would be, David, you've been a violent man. You've shed a lot of blood. I want someone who has not shed as much blood to build my house, and of course, Solomon becomes the one that does it. But what I love is that God, looking at David, knowing what's on David's heart, said, "You want to build me a house? I tell you what I do. I'll establish a house for you. And he enters into covenant with David: "Your house, your kingdom, will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established for." Ever. it's a covenant that we call the Davidic covenant and it's a covenant that still is in existence today because you see, when you turn over to the New Testament and, and Mary is approached by Gabriel and told that she's going to have a child who will be called the Son of the Most High and then he says to her, the Lord will give him the throne of his father David and then look and he'll reign over Jacob's descendants forever and ever. His kingdom will never end just as God you know, promised his great, 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 I don't know how many great grandfathers. And with that, as Dennis reminded us this morning, Jesus then entered into a brand new covenant with us, with him at the center, and he sits right now at the right hand of God, interceding for you and interceding for me and calling all of us to himself through the blood that he shed. Are you a child of God? Are you in a covenant relationship with Him? Jesus Christ invites you to one. Invites you to come and to make Him the center of your life, and you do that through faith and an act we call baptism, where you literally reenact His death, burial, and resurrection, that which sealed that new covenant. And if we can help you in any way today to become a part of this family of God, come right now. Let's together we stand.